Good morning. Welcome to the Huxley Morton podcast, Insights into the World of Clinical Trials. Uh, today, we will be speaking with Adam Walker, a biometrics uh, consultant, data and quality and medtech expert, sharing his insights as to how we got into the industry, a day in a life of, of his world and his thoughts on, on the industry going forward. Um, so, Adam, you and I have spoken, I guess, off air previously. Um but if you could perhaps just give our, our listeners a quick introduction as to, to your, your role, your company, and, and, and what you do as, as a biometrics uh, expert. Certainly. And firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to do this, James. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Um, so my, my background, I came into clinical research and data more broadly 20-odd years ago. I studied pharmaceutical sciences, and I always had a passion for medicine uh, i didn't get the grades at university unfortunately at school to to study medicine so mm. i did what i thought was the next best thing to spend as much time as i could around medics uh and that led me down to down the avenue of clinical research and mm-hmm. so for the last 20 odd years that's what i've been doing i've been working alongside medics building data outputs uh, and and working alongside those individuals in supporting the outcomes of clinical trials. Uh-huh. Data, data has changed. Data has not changed, but the manner in which it's collected has changed an awful lot in that period of time. When I first started, it was pen and paper, um, and and technology advancement then meant fax collections. Yeah. So you know, fax machines twenty odd years ago was really cutting edge. Nowadays, obviously, it's all in the palm of a hand in, in a mobile phone and in an app. So I've had to adapt, learn, and acquire new skills along the way and that's indeed what I've done in many of the different companies I've worked with. Mm. Well I think you're, you're, you're spot on in terms of data collection and, and how things have, have changed and you mentioned fax machines there I actually used to sell fax machines and, and photocopiers many years ago and the, the way it's the industry's changed there has been immense and what we ha- have in our pockets these days is it's just crazy to think that there was these huge machines and now we're, we're walking around with it um, just yeah, sat yeah. there. Um, so look, going back, you, you, I guess a, a quick rewind. Uh, you said that you perhaps didn't get the, the grades that you, you needed to. Uh, many of us have experienced that and, um, you know, misspent youths and, and whatnot. Um, how, di- how did that, you know, was it something that you always wanted to go into or did the grades push you down a, a certain route? Talk me through, I guess, sure. what, you know, what went through your mind when, you know, if you were looking at one avenue and the grades didn't hit and you thought, oh, you know, where do I go well, from here? I'll give, you an, I'll give you an impression. So if you were to ask my parents when I first was, became passionate about medicine, I think for my 12th birthday, they bought me a skeleton, mm. uh, a full working skeleton that I hung behind my bedroom door. Yeah. And they knew then that that was my passion. It was all around science. And I was good at, you know, really, really good at science and really, really passionate about the human body. Mm. And the, the interest I had in that just continued all the way through. And I guess that was really my focus all the way through then my secondary education to A-levels. And I chose to do chemistry, physics and biology because I thought that would be the best means of getting to where I wanted to. In reality, mm. it probably wasn't the best thing I could have done. And, and, and in hindsight, I think I recognised that whilst I was great at biology, I also had some other skills and I was very, very good at languages. And uh, I should have probably continued with French because I was, you know, top of the school in French. Wow. And, 
and probably geography because that was my other you know my, my two best grades at GC were geography and French and I was miles ahead in those and mm. then you know the science whilst I was good at it I wasn't as good at it as as those things so um I probably didn't read the signs early enough and maybe I I blindly went into A-levels thinking I would just stumble through it and it would all be okay it turned yeah. out you know the jump from GCSE to A-level is enormous and mm. The specialization in biology, chemistry, and physics is also highly challenging. And the gaps in physics really became evident because most of the guys that I was on, on, the, on the course with uh, were doing A-level maths. And there was a huge maths component, yeah. which I, I never got because I wasn't doing A-level maths. So there was a huge gap. And I don't think that was really explained to me at the time. So in a roundabout way, then, you know, when I, when I then went down the route of doing those A-levels, about... At the end of my first year of A levels, it was it became quite evident that I wasn't going to hit the, the top grades, and uh, then it was kind of situation of, of getting the best opportunities I could at university. Right. Taking down the route of going down, you know, a medical science, a uh -huh. biomedical science, and and that was where I came across the course of pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Greenwich, which was a tremendous course. So definitely. It, it was, it, it's a four-year course. It still runs now. It was the first university to offer a sandwich placement year. So it was a four-year course oh, with okay. a, a year in industry. And mm. not only did I learn everything about um, physiology, drug delivery systems, and uh, pharmaceutical analysis and pharmacokinetics, namely the absorption, uptake, and uh -huh. distribution, distribution of drugs in the body, but but the other aspect was that I spent a year in industry working for the first time in a scientific discipline that wasn't uh, McDonald's or KFC or delivering newspapers, which is what I'd only ever done in my part times before. Yeah. So, so it was the first time I worked in a scientific environment, thought, crikey, this is the real world. And I should also preface that by saying it was a, uh, a, a naval institution. So the Royal Naval College in Greenwich yeah. uh, at that time trained naval submariners to go down in submarines and do all the nuclear physics around that so i learned a heck wow. of a lot i did mm. a an incredibly interesting project for that year got to spend a lot of time with naval uh, submariners do a lot of sport and be exposed to some tremendous opportunities in that year nice. and actually at the end of it i had the focus that i didn't have throughout my degree first and second year mm. so that I, I knew at the end of that third year that going into my final year what I really needed to do to get a, a career in science yeah is what I did I really really knuckled down and focused on that final year got the best I could yeah for me I mean I think that's a, a great option that you've taken there funny enough I I also when I went to university I opted for a, a four-year sandwich course mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't find a placement that i seemed to you know seemed to be a good fit at the time and ended up going from a, a business studies and economics degree to a business administration degree and I missed out on that that year in industry but I think looking back at it for me now and I've got several friends that just went straight into to industry I think that it's a massive it's a massive thing isn't it just having that exposure almost midway through your studies because it prepares you and it makes you realize why why you're studying that was exactly what it did for me. So, so bear in mind at the beginning of that third year when I went to the Royal Naval College, I had mm. hair down to here, long right. hair, very, very long hair. And <laughs> the, la the last thing I did on the last week when I finished, at the by the way, I used to get ribbed, as you can imagine, being surrounded <laughs> by guys like hair like this now. Yeah. Um, so, so 
as a, as a point, as a point, the last week I went to the hairdressers. I've got it all cut off and went with a short back and sides and turned up for my final week there, and and really, really approached that final year with with a, a zeal and a and a vigor to to succeed as best as I possibly could. And and then you look absolutely, you. I absolutely did that. And yeah, it was transformative that experience. Mm. Well, so, so, yes yeah, so, yeah that's that's just one side of the, the transformation uh, you know I mean you touching it then uh, you know for me I, I was actually during my studies I was working at McDonald's uh that is that was, I. that was the part-time job I, I didn't know that about you <laughs> beforehand but you know I actually thought that that was a great a great job right you know yeah, it, yeah. it teaches you a lot of you know staff rotation and the you know the some of the business models behind what goes on in yeah. McDonald's, which is often looked down on is, you know, I, I still employ my business today. So it's, it, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, that, that's some transformation, particularly with it. I, I love the fact that there's the, the haircut in there just to almost mark that transformation into the final year. I I've had, I've had some life affirming experiences in my life and we might, we might talk about them later, but, but certainly that was a transformative experience. Um, and then after I graduated, my wife and I, she wasn't my wife at the time, by the way, she was, she was my girlfriend, but um, we went to Israel and we went and lived and worked on a kibbutz, on two different kibbutz in Israel. And that was the other transformative experience that we both experienced together, mm. um, was really to understand what it meant to live with nothing and appreciate everything. And yeah. we were the poorest and the happiest we've ever been. She would say exactly the same, I'm pointing to the door because she's the other side of that door yeah but we were, we would both absolutely say that when we had nothing we were the happiest and actually that's the reality of it is that um you know appreciating everything and and building a value in in, in doing and being part of a community was in, enormously impactful to both 100 percent, 100 percent. um so look, I, I think it's it's fair to say that yeah this is kind of the route that you always wanted to go go down it's a little bit skewed at, at, at points because there was a couple of bumps in the road but hey that's that's kind of life isn't it that happens for, for everyone it doesn't always go the, the way that you want it to um my life my life has not part uh, has, has not followed a typical path you know it's it, it's something that i actually appreciate the bumps in the road and and those kind of uh, actual signposts the opportunities for signposts because mm. by by nature I'm, I'm i'm a risk taker i like change and i adapt to change very well some people don't and i recognize that as being a, a superpower and so that's one of my superpowers when there's change and when there's opportunity up front i will take it as opposed to keeping the status quo that's what i actually do and i actively do that Mm. Likewise, I'm I'm kind of the same. You know, I, I heard a quote from someone who talks about you know uh, change and the fact that you know if it's not broke, don't fix it. But he then goes on to say, well, if if it could be better, it's as good as broken. You know, you yeah. have to in this world kind of sometimes just ditch your old ideas, even if they've been family traditions, whatever it may be. If there's a new idea that comes along and it's better it's you know that's the mark of a successful person is being able to take that new idea and, and run with it so clearly it's it's uh worked for, for me in my life clearly it's worked for, for yourself also um you're now working as a, as a biometrics um expert we, we spoke off air that you have been a consultant you've managed teams you've grown teams you've hired uh, and obviously as a, as a recruitment business I know how difficult that can be yeah. um but look talk, talk us through your your kind of day-to-day -day 
or, or typical, should I say, day-to-day pre-COVID and, and how that may have, have changed sure. to, to where we are today? So um, I went back into consulting just over a year ago, having completed a, a permanent role. And prior to that, I'd done four or five years of consulting. What was interesting, what was interesting, um, I worked as a consultant for four or five years before I went back into permanent work. Mm. And I've been consulting again for the last just over a year. And the reason I enjoy consulting firstly is because it's down to me. I'm my own business developer. I rely upon my professional connections and mm. my own professionalism and references to ensure that I get future work. Mm. The difference, the difference is, is, so, is so marked between that and permanent roles. And my expectations of myself and my team don't change whether I'm permanent or, or consulting. But the difference mm. I find is that there is no comfort in consulting. Every day is different. There is no arm around the shoulder. It's going to be okay. It's down to you. You know, if you get out of bed in the morning, you don't feel like being being fresh and being the best version of yourself, then you're going to have a pretty lousy day. And people are going to pick up on that very quickly in all the conversations that you have, whether it be by email, in person or on the phone. Mm. And, and I actually, what I found during COVID is I, I was working, I was doing a six month placement with the MHRA up at Canary Wharf and I was commuting every day. Uh-huh. on the train up there just at the beginning of lockdown um I had about a month to go and i was one of the last people left on the train and they were a government agency and i was thinking well surely surely they're going to be closing down every other building around us was closed yeah wow. the only ones left all of my friends who work in private industry were had been working from home for three or four weeks and and i continued and finished that project and didn't actually expect there to be much more on the back of that in other words i thought i would actually be very quiet and what i found was that through linkedin and through various professional avenues i got contacted about a number of different opportunities and and was in a position where i found i had more than one client for the first time in my consulting career perfect and 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 so it's gone and those have been some of them have been extended um, but some of them have been ad hoc, and those ad hoc ones are highly lucrative. You don't know when they're going to come, but when they do, they're always really fun. You know, I have a, a, a conversation with a venture capital panel or someone like that, and they'll ask me about what's happening in the industry with regards to, I don't know, a technology or um, a particular approach to, it might be testing of COVID, I don't know. I've mm-hmm. had so many broad conversations during this lockdown period. Um and those are, you know, very well remunerated. They're usually an hour or two conversation. And at the end of it, I feel like I've given something back. And certainly the people that I'm speaking to feel they've learned something about the industry because they're looking in from the outside and they're looking at investing in a company or a technology or a proposition around yeah. those things. Mm. So those sorts of conversations seem to be happening a lot now. I would say to the point where I'm having two or three a month, probably, of those. Yeah. Um, and alongside that, I'm doing a number of different ad hoc uh, activities for, for companies so there, there seems to be a lot more ad hoc and my time is taken up juggling many different many different you almost kind of it sounds as though you're, you're working in, in bursts almost you do a, a stint over here you're then yep. doing a, a stint sort, sort of elsewhere but because they're, they're lucrative enough it kind of it it's still paying pays the mortgage pays the bills and allows you to kind of run your day rather than having an office and, and your day running you effectively. Exactly. Um, 
to, to that point, I mean, I speak to a number of friends who, who are in permanent employment and they say, well, you know, what are you up to today or what are you up to this week when I see them on the side of the rugby pitch yeah. on a Sunday where my son's playing? And, and, and it may sound like I'm being vague, but actually I don't know what each week is going to end up it's, like. It, that's, it, that's, it's exciting, right? It's, you know, I, I kind of like that. It, no, no two days are the same. And actually there are very few days where, where I will make a decision to not actively do anything that will further my opportunities i'll give the example of yesterday so i my kids are on half term this week mm. uh, and they're both working hard towards the gcc and a levels this summer they needed a break we all needed a break my wife's a teacher so we decided with our friends that they would go rock climbing so we we took them rock climbing i switched off all my technology and i didn't do anything as far as Developing business, responding to emails or anything. We were there, we were in the middle of the forest. There was no technology anyway. There was no... Wow. And that was perfect. And when I came back home last night, I checked my emails. There were a couple of bits and pieces. I said, I'll pick these up in the morning. And and that's exactly what I've done. So, you know, Mm. you have the autonomy to to define what your boundaries are. Yeah. And many, many people in permanent positions find it difficult to have boundaries because they're governed they're, by... they're, they're nervous, they're worried, they think they're being scrutinised all the time, and actually, mm-hmm. they usually are, and their time is accountable. Every minute of every day is accountable to them, uh, to, their, to their superiors. Yeah. They, they have to complete timesheets. They have to be visible. They have to be available. Now, I'm all of those things, but it's on my terms and not someone else's terms, and that's the difference as a consultant that I experience and that I really enjoy more than anything else. And I, I think that's a, it's a great model. I mean, you clearly enjoy it. I mean, as... You know, as a as a business owner, I'm kind of at the opposite end. You know, I I take people on, but that's to an extent what my business model is is all about. It's about empowering our staff to do exactly what you're doing, but just under the the umbrella, as it may be, of of Huxley yeah. Morton. And yes, we're we're small, we're growing, but I think with the outbreak of of COVID it's almost launched us and this business model much faster than what would have otherwise happened. You know, we've got a couple of guys doing it. It's working well. They seem to absolutely love it. Yes. You know, we check in on, on zoom on teams, etc. but I'm, I'm not one to be checking up on people. You know, I, I don't want to be saying how many calls have you made? How many emails have you done? Have you done this? Have you done that? The people, you know, if you, if you hire right and you get the right individual, you know, someone like yourself who clearly is passionate about what they do, you don't need to be doing that checking up because you know that that person's doing it for themselves anyway. And as a consultant, it's clear that you're taking the, that as one of the best parts. Um, but what, I mean, what would you say is, is the, the hardest part of of that is it is it kind of a, a double-edged sword between the, the best part and the hardest part is maybe that uncertainty I know that's perhaps what it was like for me when when starting the business it was it was yeah what the, the positivity was also that the challenge I'm happy to answer that question because the last 12 months I've been absolutely flat out and for the last couple of weeks I've had a little bit of downtime where I would say like an actor I'm slightly between roles so I'm doing mm. a bit more business development yeah activity waiting for one of those projects to drop now if mm. several of them drop at the same time i'm going to be in a position where i'm probably going to have to hire someone and i've got some people in line who are ready to go if they need to be yeah so there is a kind of flexibility and agility around it where we can go from boom to bust and vice versa as quickly mm. yeah so you've got to be agile you've got to be flexible you've got to be ready but um 
as I say, these opportunities are changing all the time. And life sciences right now is so hot. It's ridiculous. Massively. It, the, it, it's, not, it's not a cliche to say this is absolutely, you know, the forefront of all decision making right now to the point where, you know, I've been talking to a company who are doing mobile COVID testing. So mm. they go to these professional um, football and rugby and, and, and film sets for, like Netflix and Amazon Prime. Yeah, they park their vehicles outside. They do COVID testing, but they're doing nothing with the data. Now, a contact of mine said sent me a message on LinkedIn the other day and said, uh, "I've just started working for these guys. I really think they need to speak to you because they're doing nothing with their data, either mm. externally or internally. They're not analysing it. They're not looking for patterns of behaviour. They're certainly not sharing it in a wider sense. But they're doing twenty thousand, maybe fifty thousand COVID tests a week, and that's outside of the government stuff. Wow. That's, that is, uh, I mean, I'm no data expert, but that amount of data floating around and just... Doing nothing just, with. Yeah, just, just being data, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, but now, now, put, now overlay that with COVID, okay? So mm-hmm. these are patterns that we are all seeing and hearing about in the public domain that are being managed by the government. This information is underneath the radar that's not publicly available information at the moment i'm not saying it needs to be public but certainly there is value in that data that's my point oh that's that's the kind of conversations that seem to drop into my lap all the time at the moment yeah Um, i I could give you countless other examples of of similar sorts of things but it's dynamic and it's changing all the time and it's changing because the virus is impacting the way that people are working where they're Mm. commuting how they're able to work you know, these films, these films and Netflix, look, everyone's at home. We're all watching Netflix. No one's going to the cinema. We're all yeah. watching box sets. They've got to keep that going all the time. And they've got new content running all the time, all over the, all over the country. Well, I know that, yeah, I mean, filming hasn't necessarily stopped my, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but my, my younger sister is a stuntman or stunt performer. Um, oh, I know that. And she is currently, or she has been for the last couple of weeks over in Northern Ireland doing filming. So I'd imagine that these guys have these COVID testing sets. She, she's over there with... That's what they do. Who's a, is the world's strongest man? Um, Thor, or not, not Eddie Hall, the, the other huge guy. So he's, he's part of the, uh, the, the, the team over there. I don't know what they're filming, but um, it all looks very dangerous. It sounds like Game of Thrones. I think it, that guy's in Game of Thrones, isn't he? And I know could, they film it in, 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 in Ireland, but it could, could well be. Could well there. be, could well be. Again, she's she's one of these people, never starstruck by, by any means, mm. like... We'll all ask her as a family who who was on set, who was who was this. She's just like, oh, I don't know. Oh, that guy out of that program. <laughs> you're like, come on. <laughs> well, you see, without this kind of capability, you can't be running films right now. You certainly, mm. you know, professional Premier League football and rugby would not be happening right now any more than golf or tennis or any of these things. They're doing they're testing them almost every day. Yeah, and they're doing it on site and they're doing rapid turnaround testing and they're being paid for by the RFU by the FA. And by the LTA, you know, all of those, all of those um, associations are ensuring that they're COVID-free, so that they can continue to to take part in sport, but also that they can televise it, so that the rest of us can can at least, you know, pay for this view. Yeah, well, I'm guessing you're trying to do all your, your bit as much as you can, so that you can get back to your your beloved Brighton uh, football matches as a scene and ticket there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, of course. And and funnily enough, I've had a couple of conversations with. Um, with our local our local BBC channel about mm. that, funnily enough, because there have been a lot of connections around not just myself, but my parents who are shielding, and they're mm. also season ticket holders at the at the Albion. Yeah, 
I've been I've been I've been representing them because effectively they they were asked to to continue paying for their season ticket when they knew that they weren't ever going to be going back into that ground until COVID's gone. Mm. Um, and I put that question to to Brighton Hove Albion and to the, the chief executive Paul Barber around why they should be insisting that people who were shielding were still paying their season ticket even though they could never not go to the ground. Yeah, that's a whole different conversation. But actually. There are many layers to, to what we're all experiencing right now. Sure. Okay, well, look, I guess back to, uh, you know, that's kind of how things have, have been going. There's a lot that, it sounds like there's been a lot going on and there's been a lot of changes um, yes. that you've sort of faced personally over the, the past six to nine months. I guess, what would you say has, has been maybe the, the, the most challenging of, of those? And what, I guess, what have you perhaps, what has that taught you about yourself? And what have you learned about yourself? It sounds like there was some, lessons in life early on when you know your, your wife uh, and yourself traveled um and that's perhaps where you've picked up a lot of your communication skills that's one thing that you know I, I really like about you and it's interesting to hear that you were so good at languages and, and even communicating in French way back when um, Hebrew I speak Hebrew I read and write wow. Hebrew um, um so yeah what, <laughs> what have you learned over the you know that's what you've learned over the years and clearly it's molded you into the person that you are now um but what for everyone, there's probably been a, a huge acceleration about what they've been learning about themselves over the past six months. I know for yes. me, it's been been massive in terms of my views on, on how I want to structure and run the business. Um, rather than having a, a load of guys in an office, I'm now trying to empower people to almost kind of work like for themselves. Um, Autonomously, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, what have, what have you learned um, about sort of yourself at your end, Adam? Um I've always been very keen on structure and I've got, as I said, I've got two teenage kids at the moment who are preparing, hopefully, for exams next summer. Um, yeah. What's very clear to me is that as a parent and as a professional, I need structure and every day needs to be structured. You know, getting up at a regular time, getting regular sleep mm. and just just being available. And that may be whether it's online, on phone or whatever. It, You know, the, the challenges right now are, are no different to what they've ever been, except we have rules and regulations around how we can govern ourselves mm. so you know the kind of advice i've given to my children has been really around making sure that every single day at every opportunity that they've gone back into school their teacher sees that they are trying as hard as they can that they are showing and demonstrating improvements in their learning every single day because at any given point we're all being assessed okay and this is yeah. a life lesson we are all being assessed whether we like it or not every single day of the year Definitely. Now, if they don't sit their exams, whatever they've demonstrated since they've returned to school is going to be the level that they're going to get. Mm. So we had this conversation as a family at the beginning of lockdown, and we said, just continue to do exactly what you're doing. Do work hard, get your work in on time, don't miss assessments. And when you do go back to school, because this was in March we had this conversation, when you do yeah. go back to school, you're going to absolutely going to have to be top of the class, visible accessible answering questions and i i've taken that principle back into my own work which is you know just be as visible and as transparent and as clear in your communications whether it be professionally or personally all the way through and and that's really not changed in me but it's much more visible now because yeah. my shop front my shop front is linkedin it's also every email that i send or receive and it's the responsiveness that i have to emails um to requests for proposals to supporting my professional network you know if someone happens to send me a message on linkedin and says i you know i've been talking to this client it'd be really great if 
if I could um, if I could pick up the phone and speak to them, then I will that particular day. You know, I'm not yeah. going to put it off for a couple of days. I'm absolutely. I think you're you're spot on with, with that actually. Yeah, in terms of just being being visible, it's perhaps I think a lot of us are doing exactly the same, but it has to be shown a bit more. You know, I, I have conversations with candidates looking for work a lot of the time and they may know that they've got 15 years of experience in oncology or you know another therapeutic area for example but if it's not demonstrated on their LinkedIn profile or on their resume or CV how is a third party able to, to see that and that's sort of the, the guidance I'm often giving behind the scenes is, is you, you need to kind of showcase the, these things and and brag a little bit more um, without going over the top of course uh, and I think, yeah, you, you mentioned LinkedIn. I mean, that's a huge platform at the moment. Um, and it is just a case of highlighting your expertise and, and also just giving back to others. Like, like you said, you know, if people reach out, it doesn't take forever to you know, guide them in the right direction. We would all appreciate it. So, um, yeah, I, I've been doing it. It's great to hear that you, you've been doing it. I think that, that as a community, everyone is kind of coming together in, in that sort of way. Um, I, I will I will take up on that point exactly. So you know the reason that you and I are having this conversation today is because I never shut down any conversation. You and I had not spoken a couple of weeks ago before. You contacted me on LinkedIn. I yeah. was open to having a conversation. I will never ever turn down the opportunity to speak to someone because you never know where it's going to lead, and you never know what that opportunity might open up into. Mm. Don't know what they might look to. But but also to to another point you made about being visible. There is a very fine line between being visible and oversharing. And mm. I read this term earlier in the week. I, re I was reading a paper and, and they were talking about this toxic positivity. Now, that's a very fine line between oversharing, being too much of yourself and actually finding a balance between sharing and imparting knowledge and at the same time showcasing yourself to the point where people stop following you or mm. don't want to see what you're sharing. So it's very, it's very, very fine. It's a very fine line. So there's certain articles I will share and may not give a comment on. I'll just put them out there and say, you know, if you follow me, you might find this interesting. And I'll just yeah. use it as that. Or I, I read this and I thought this was great, but not over egging every opportunity to be visible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I have to be conscious of that one myself, I guess, as a, as a former sort of sportsman um i would always be talking about my successes it was part of just building building my own confidence um, yes. so i'm always running the highlight reel um so i'm you're spot on i'm always conscious of am i now coming across in a way that will frustrate people to an extent so you yeah. don't want to alienate your audience you know it's, yeah. a very, it's a very very fine line between alienating and keeping engaged with your audience and and I think more so than ever, I, re I really appreciate that and see it and experience it because I can see, I think, where other people are perhaps going too far. And I don't want to be that person. So that is also a very fine balance, particularly when you're running your own business, when I'm relying upon that visibility to, to, to build more, more opportunities. As you say, you're, you're your own shop front. And what you put out is, is your, shop, your shop front, as it may be. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, on the subject of, of you know, platforms and LinkedIn, Instagram and oversharing, undersharing, not being authentic, et cetera, et cetera. We've, we've all seen it all on, on LinkedIn over the, over the past sort of uh, few months. I know that you're a big advocate of sort of e-health and, and things going um, digital um, kind of brings me nicely on to, to the next question that I, I had in mind was, you know, what are your thoughts on 
virtual trials and, and the way the pharma industry is, is going. I've sat in, in in a whole host of webinars. I often have them playing in the background whilst I'm, you know, going through admin related works uh, at my desk and, you know, talking about pharma companies coming together and maybe making less individually, but sort of sharing their, their and just that whole, similar to LinkedIn, networking together and, and sharing data, et cetera. What are your thoughts on, how that's going to go, um, you know, in order to ensure that clinical trials continue to run and that we're analysing and getting that data, sharing that data. What are your thoughts on, on that side of things? So, I mean, trials have always run um, in a virtual sense. So we've often talked about e-consent and doing things electronically. You don't have to physically go to a hospital to meet the person to sign a piece of paper. We know that now, you know, we've mm. got electronic signatures. We've had them for a long time. Yeah. There, there's a lot of noise about that particular aspect when in fact, you know, my, my feeling is really people are using this as a platform to open up conversations more than adapting particularly uh, approaches that are working because clinical research is the highly, the most highly regulated industry there is. Outside of, outside of banking, okay, we're dealing with people's health. We're dealing with putting drugs in human beings. So none of those rules have changed. What I think has changed, though, is that the public perception of getting vaccines to market. Okay, I've never worked on a clinical trial where a drug has got to market in less than 10 years. So wow. when I pick up the newspaper and I hear that people are saying that within three or six months we're going to have a vaccine that's going to get rid of COVID, I'm like, that's not going to happen. Now, it doesn't matter how good your science is. There are processes in place in the clinical trial process that protect the individual. Mm. The health of the individual, it's all about patient safety. The only thing that matters. Okay, so if it's not safe for a patient, once it's gone through animal toxicology, healthy volunteers, phase two, phase three, and post-marketing, it's not, it's not gonna get it's not gonna get to market. So, you know, we can wish hard and we can stand up on, on podiums and say that you know, by the end of the year, this is going to happen because we're, we're going to be voted in on the back of that. Mm. But actually, the reality I tell my friends and family is this is going to be with us for a long time. So let's just deal with it. OK, respect what we're dealing with and don't think that there is a magic bullet because there isn't. And, and that's hard to hear. But that's what we live with here. That's what my parents have lived with since before lockdown. That's the conversation I had with them. I said, you know, unfortunately, this is going to shut down things for you a lot. Mm. And to shut down things for all of us, and we're all going to have to make choices on the back of that. Yeah. So, so in answer to your question about virtual trials, people who want to do clinical trials will always do them. The fact is that there's an awful lot more publicity around COVID trials than any other right now. And that doesn't mean that cancer has gone away and any other indication that we've been working on for the last 15, 20 years. Mm. You know, diabetes is still a big killer. Cancers, um, you name it, they're, they're all still out there. Still there, there and, yeah. And there's this, t there's this tidal wave of... of of issues coming over the corner because we've taken our eye off the ball to be quite frank you know we're going to have to get some measures in place and we are going to all have to respect new rules and that's what we're doing and we're adapting to them in in different guises in different locations around the world mm. but the days of jumping on a plane and going on on a holiday and, and coming back and there being no implications for that that's gone for a while so we just got to deal with that you know, and, and this is going to impact all of our lives in many different aspects of our lives, but we're just going to have to adapt. And so that, you know, coming back to your original question around virtual trials, virtual trials, you, you're still going to have to go into, into a hospital setting and be injected with a drug or 
you know, have certain tests done on your body because you can't do all those things remotely. What you can do is you can give your consent online, but you're going to have to have that interaction in a clinical setting with medics at some point. Um, and, and, you know, to that, to that point, I was approached about joining a flu camp a couple of weeks ago in, in London. And I've been yeah. thinking about going into London and doing that because I think that would be an interesting way to see how those things are being addressed. Bearing in mind, I, I've worked in a number of early phase clinical trial units and I know how restrictive they are. Mm. And I think it would be interesting just to see how those restrictions behind, have played behind, out yeah, for COVID. Behind the scenes f- firsthand. Yeah, because because that's not what's in the public domain at the moment. It's not being shared in the public domain. And those are the kind of conversations that I think are are real and and are going to drive life sciences outside of just COVID. Well, I I, I mean, my view on it is just just the, the amount of media around it can only be a good thing. And as you say, you know, if people are going to have to just knuckle down and, and get used to it, it's probably just as we've sort of learning about ourselves, it's maybe just accelerating that because the world of, of clinical trials, um, it's often just unheard of. People don't, unless you're in, in the industry, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes and it's kind, kind right. of all alien, whereas now it's in the forefront. So hopefully there's, you know, that silver lining that comes out of um, this is just that raised awareness. But, the, you know, it's just a reality check. When, you know, when I said about the eight to 10 years, your face dropped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You, you Your face dropped because because <laughs> that's not that's not in the public domain. But I'm, I'm telling you, this is the reality of it. And and if if I were given a, a, an opportunity to stand on a podium and, and address this country, I'd be giving them a reality check right now because actually that might make people's behaviour change. Whereas yeah. they think this is a short term thing, I'm afraid this is not. You know, don't think about this in in, in four week chunks. Think about this in four months, four years. Yeah, I'm sorry, but you know, if something happens sooner. Adam, wait until I go and tell my missus about this. She's she's not going to be her face is going to drop also. <laughs> but yeah. such such is life. It's it's one of those things that I'm always a great believer that you have to suck these things up. You have to accept it and yeah, then create a, a path that is going to going to work long term. It's like any a diet plan, a fitness plan. You know, small changes and and it comes naturally. Whereas if you try and just go from zero to 100 with anything it just doesn't work so um a marathon starts with one step 100 percent um so look that's kind of brings us to to the close there of, of a, uh, my line of, of questioning for you i guess one thing i always just like to ask uh, at the end of any interview is we've heard about you what you did what you do there was a clear route into uh, the market right from the skeleton hanging up on your door as a, as a uh, 12-year-old child. Um, but what would have been your, your route if you if you weren't in the world of pharmaceuticals, biometrics, data, and doing what you're doing now? What do you what would you have liked to have done outside of, of that? Is it Brighton Centre Forward? What 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 are the interests elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, outside of work, I've always been heavily involved in in, in sport. And uh, throughout my school years, I was very sporting. I played a lot of football, uh, a little bit of rugby, not as much as I would have liked to have done because I wasn't as good at it. Um, and I was one of the few kids that continued playing sport when when we left school. So I played yeah. uh, county league football through my 20s and 30s. Um, and, you know, I encouraged my, both my kids are very sporting. My daughter's a horse rider and she was a county swimmer. My son plays rugby at a very high level, mm. county level. 
So we're always in and around sport and we're outdoors all the time. We live very close to the South Downs. We've got three dogs. We go out walking. We do a lot of outdoors activities. My wife is an environmentalist. She teaches geography and she studied environmental science. So that probably gives a broad picture of how we live our lives. We live in a you know very rural place and we're out and about all the time, irrespective of the weather. And that won't ever change. Um, so... You know, I, I don't think there are many people who can make a career out of sport, but certainly what I do find is that the, the sporting endeavour has given me a different perspective with regards to team sports and individual sports. Um, in, my, in my 30s, I ran marathons and did triathlons. Wow. Um, and that was possibly one of the worst things I could have done for my body because, <laughs> you know, the, the reality is it, it, it broke me as far as my knees and my back. And, um, you know, in, in my mid to late 40s now, I'm struggling with some of the impacts of going from a, a sideways movement of football to running in a single direction, oh. doing, doing marathon running. But I started doing that when my daughter was born. She was born prematurely. She was six weeks early. And I wanted to give something back. So I ran a marathon for Bliss, the premature baby charity. And yeah. nice. I got the bug. I just got the bug. And, um, I think it's like that. I've got one, one of my best mates is a marathon runner. I think he's done three or four now. And it's, I say, why do you do it to yourself? But I think once you start, it is that bug and it just takes incredible. It's incredible. So, you know, sport has always been a big part of my life in whatever capacity. And that's always underpinned everything that I've done um, both professionally and academically. And, and as, I've, as I've got older, I've realized the importance of that, not just to myself, my, my well-being, but, but for our, us as a family. You know, we yeah. do an awful lot of active, active um, things every single day. And, and yeah, I think that... A lot, of, a lot of positivity that comes out of being involved and in around sporting activity. So hopefully you're going to keep that up. And um, yeah, some more rock climbing may be on the cards for, for you and the family in a not too distant future. I was I was holding the rope and I was at the bottom making sure that they weren't slipping. Um, I'm not great with heights, uh, so it wasn't my preference to be there. But actually, I think they got an awful lot from it. And um, mm. as I say, you know, it's about balance. Everything is about balance, um, whether it's about diet or work or exercise, whatever you're doing. It's just having a good balance of um, making making good choices, and and that's what I try and do uh, as much as I possibly can. Definitely. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up there. I think that, yeah, you and I have a lot of things that we agree, agree on there. Um, yeah, very similar backgrounds. Um, so look, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. We'll let you get off for the rest of your day. Thank you, James. And once again, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. today. Great stuff. Cheers, Adam.